I'm riding. You are listening to and or watching Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos and all things that flow from it all over again. I'm Vic Singh. Not in a daze we find Christopher in at the start of this iconic episode, but present, ready, and excited to mine it with you all again. And as you know, we don't have to go far. Certainly not as far as this guy did before we strike oil. Or I guess the soprano equivalent might look something like this. This episode comes at us as brisk as a well-edited YouTube short or Ronaldo Travella, but with the poise and calm of a vintage Zidane counterattack. Or now, thankfully, I'm proud to say, Brock Purdy bursting out of the pocket under duress. Here's Purdy on first down. Late blitz coming. In trouble. Purdy stays up on his feet somehow and now throws it and has a completion. Chris staring at the leaky espresso machine, which offers a few possible interesting interpretations. The interpreter? Waste or inefficiency in this episode. That could be represented by the passage of time for Christopher. Unresolved issues, things that need attention or need to be addressed, like every NBA player able to drop 60 on any given night, and how until that happens, there's usually frustration and disappointment. Or in the case of the NBA, endless debate on the way things used to be versus now. Different time, another era. And then there's neglect. This espresso machine isn't the only thing that needs its pipes cleaned. Christopher does too. The things or people we don't pay attention to or outright neglect will eventually show signs of wear and tear, like this espresso machine. This is as good a time as any to explore the idea of iconic opening shots. This one in particular first, the tone setting sounds, the combination of quiet and metallic ambience and the space between them, as if it were an interlude that belonged on the dark side of the moon. Then, how the remembrance of Emil Kolar's voice against the harmony of the songstress and the aquatones prompts him to get up. The color palette, the blues, the greens, the gingham tablecloth, all tied together by his white tank. The pre-Carmi, now signature and essential, Murs tea. Which is another worthwhile topic. Iconic opening looks. Tony and the robe on the driveway. Carmi and the whitest tea ever created, cut specifically to his mold. LeBron's draft night fit. The bump in MERS sales since the bear has been more than significant. Just try finding one in your size on any given day. It reminds you of the resurgence in Epaulet members-only jackets when this show of ours was at the peak of its powers, after its original popularity became its downfall. Balenciaga even dropped their $1,200 take on the style. Thank you, Ott's hipsters, and those of you who finance them. Herb Goldsmith, the creator of the jacket, died a few years ago. When I checked out his obit, you know, like Livia would. Who is it? I'm sleeping. In fairness to her, obituary writing is some of the very best around. I learned that he specialized in getting celebrities to endorse his products. And among the biggest around to ever do it 
And most certainly a reason for popularizing the jacket among Tony's circle was Francis Albert. Sinatra. Take that, Pierre Cardin, once a brand Goldsmith aspired to. Recently, we've seen the jacket pop up on Matt Damon in Air, season three of The Boys, Michael B. Jordan in Just Mercy, and of course, my king of kings for his unrelenting performance of Richie in The Bear, Eben. Circling back to the iconicness of this opening sequence, the symbolism. Espresso machines suggest rituals, routines, daily habits. Among the things Christopher is struggling to sort out this episode, they also suggest productivity and work, people shaping their arcs, and eventually, if they're lucky, getting credit for it, or at least mentioned in a local paper. And finally, dreams as places to work out guilt or fear or a combination of both. Here, Christopher remembering his first kill. Stepping away from The Sopranos in this scene for a moment, there's so many opening shots across cinema to draw inspiration from. Consider. Scotty and Vertigo. Even if you never saw that movie, you know the shot. Talk about staying power. The girl swimming in Jaws. Has anybody ever not thought about that? Anytime they dive into a body of water? The approach from behind on Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. And then a little later in the opening sequence, but no less impactful, his face being revealed for the first time. Visuals so indelible and stunning, there's a strong argument to be made the character should have had its number retired and hung in the rafters. There's Ray Liotta in Goodfellas, a veritable jersey of your favorite player most of us aspired to wear when we first saw him on screen. Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards, that tension in between every breath and line of dialogue. The guy walked into back-to-back -back Oscars the way Jordan walked into his threes against Portland before his second ring. Daniel Plainview striking oil in There Will Be Blood, noticing a pattern of my regular mentioning of that film. A safety blanket, perhaps, but also a testament to how what's great stays great and subconsciously top of mind, just like this show. Rounding out this segment you never knew you needed about iconic opening shots, I'm also a big fan of being parachuted into a young Mark Zuckerberg on a date in the social network. And you obviously can't do this list or whatever the fuck it is without mentioning the undeniable unforgettableness of Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Oh, and Brother Muzan. Sure, he didn't show up until the ninth episode of season two, but iconic character intros are close cousins of opening shots. Richie Aprile, Gloria Trillo, Tony Blundetto, Coach Mangini. All this time on opening shots, sequences, looks, character introductions, is to say it's all incredibly important. But because it happens first, we lose sight, forget what grabbed hold of us in the first place. The tones, the settings, the themes, the conveyance of essential information. We've all been taught it's not how you start, but how you finish, especially in the context of sports. Take the Niners against the Lions in the NFC Championship game. But sometimes how you start is how you finish. Like the 
dynasty runs of the Spurs, Lakers, and Warriors. The Sopranos never played from behind. They kept the lead, did laps around the competition their entire run. Now, I simply can't abandon this topic of iconic opening shots without first at least mentioning the iconic opening fits that filled them. The two logically go hand in hand. There's Christopher's look here, of course, and his stands alone. But other memorable ones that sear on your brain once you see them, Don Corleone, Borat, The Bride and Kill Bill, that's her name, right? Beatrix Kiddo, Black Mamba, and Darth Vader. With respect to the dream sequence here, a question arises. Why would Adriana morph into Carmela? Shapeshift. Perhaps it was to symbolize metamorphosis, something Christopher's attempting to undergo this episode, if not the whole series. And perhaps it spoke to unresolved feelings, not necessarily feelings for Carmela, but rather what or who Adriana could become and whether that's something he wants or wants to run away from. And I wonder, is the clumping together of multiple people in our lives a common pattern in dreams? Don't bust my balls with Freud by numbers, would you? All right, so that's two questions. Jesus, what is the same position now? Overruled. Here's a third, more of an open question. Where does Chris popping up out of a bed after a bad dream rank in the pantheon of other dazed and confused? That top-down underexposed frame of Colin Firth and a single man shot by Edward Grau, who also shot the Way Back with Affleck. Underrated hoops picture. There's Florence Pugh in Midsommar. The cold sweat on Christian Bale in Batman Begins. Anya Taylor-Joy's deer in headlights look in The Witch. The desaturated green Naomi Watts in The Ring. Rami Malek in Mr. Robot. Perhaps the Closest one to Christopher in terms of them sharing withdrawal tendencies. Killian Murphy and Peaky Blinders. Lakeith Stanfield in Atlanta. Hard to say, but no matter which way you slice it, no pun intended, Christopher cleaved the competition. Certainly in terms of enviable chest hair. From dreams to reality, a wedding everybody's got to go to but that nobody could give a fuck about. Larry Boy, a captain's daughter. Christopher hands off an unwrapped, as if that wasn't bad enough, stolen laptop to the happy couple. Rather calm couple too, considering anyone with half an intellect might imagine accepting stolen gifts could have consequences, as it does in several jurisdictions. Knowingly being the litmus test. I don't know. What don't you know? That Christopher kept one for himself is a nice little introductory setup to tie together his writing exploits this episode. Upon entry, Livia lets the world know. I am nobody's darling. That, by the way, was the title of a 1943 musical when Livia, then Polio, would have been around 14. Safe to say she wasn't anybody's darling then either. The fuck do you know about it? Then a teaser, that classic mechanism designed to pique audience interest. 
create anticipation, hint at key plot points or conflicts. Larry pulls Tony aside to tell him some disturbing news, only to get called over by the priest. That keeping Tony in suspense, us in suspense, the intrigue of the, I've got something to tell you, but I can't yet, exchange. A simple but clever device to keep us perched on the edge of our seats. Align with the characters who are waiting with bated breath for information. Oxygen! I need some oxygen! It's worth noting, as I'm sure we did in the original podcast, that the show classically ratchets things up after an otherwise relatively quiet, by soprano standards, episode. What's so great about the design of this scene in particular is that Pauly is the first recipient of Larry's intel, namely that federal indictments are imminent, per a word processor over at FBI who's moonlighting as a source. I got bills to pay, huh? What this means, naturally, is that word will travel fast, especially where Pauly's concerned. He's not waiting for nothing or nobody once he's got the goods. Exhibit A, the Ginny Sack joke. I just want to say, uh, I hope your feelings weren't hurt too bad and that it never got back to the missus. Fuck you talking about? We do the rounds with a select cross-section of the crew, where things are corroborated. Half of New York has already fled to Florida. Mulled, Chris contemplating for a moment, from afar, of course, still a step or two removed from the big boy table. Whether or not having his button yet actually helps in this scenario. And planned out, Junior gives marching orders that were all but spoon-fed to him by Tony. Spring cleaning. That was my next comment. With the first order of business being some of the guys recalling their wedding gifts on account they're about to need any extra cash on hand. The way they disband afterward. Like the summer wind playing around them. They're as fluid as Real Madrid running a set play on a corner kick, with everybody first clustering, then disbanding to their spots on the pitch. Here, dance floor. Note how Silvio grabs his date to leave, who, by the way, is not his wife. Some women are manhandled more than others, a subtle character reveal for each male counterpart, where they're at in their relationships, and where they're at as men, more generally. Shifting over to Casa Soprano, that spring cleaning Tony mentioned is in full effect. And it's not the spring cleaning most of us are accustomed to. The first order of business, hoovering up any loose money in the air ducts, which any HVAC installer will tell you is a bad idea, blocking airflow like that, even if it makes for compelling cinema. Things like hollowed out books, a la Shawshank, fake containers in the pantry, or in between plastic liners of a trash can may give you better mileage, or at the very least, a well-cooled home. Man on Want another super nacho? After money, weapons. And weapons is a bit of an understatement. Also notice how it's plural. It's closer to artillery. The way he asks Carmela, What's the matter? While casually holding an automatic weapon. The situational irony of it all, piled on by the fact that Meadow overhears everything, tells AJ, who's too busy swatting at flies to care, just like he was in Meadowlands, first with the baseball mitt and now with the upgrade to an actual fly swatter. 
We've seen this motif twice already, which suggests it means something. It might speak a little to his inability to concentrate, always getting easily distracted. Or it could just be that he needs to close a fucking window. Don't open the window, the garbage reeks. When Meadow floats the idea that his porn collection would be exposed and confiscated, that fly lives to fight another day. Carmela questioning the legitimacy of her engagement ring. What do you think I am? His pause, though, before answering. Short enough to let it slide, but just long enough to make you wonder. Semi-serious question. Would it matter if it were fraudulently obtained? That he didn't pay for it? Would it mean he loved her any less? What about a diamond cutter or jeweler? The very nature of their business might afford them the opportunity to get a below market deal on a rock. False equivalency? Or Michael Jordan's shoulder shrug emoji guy? Shoulder shrug emoji guy must have also been involved in the casting for Pussy's wife, as we next see a stand-in helping him make charcoal briquettes out of incriminating evidence. Next, Christopher and his writing exploits. The one exchange of dialogue on the page. In fairness to him, he's ahead of most. When his software glitches, he cries out to Adriana. It ain't my whole script now. The line, it ate my whole script. We assume there was more, contextually, based on what we see, which was something mid-dialogue. But it's hilarious, because everything about the staging of this scene, the time of day, peak soap opera o'clock, the wide, establishing nature of the shot before coming in close, showcasing the isolated and lonely nature of writing. What we know about Christopher to this point, that he's erratic and impatient on a good day. Considering all that, it's entirely possible that's all he had. Which, of course, makes the line, ate my whole script, deliciously funny. I've done nothing, but technology has prevented me from doing anything. Fucking internet. Also, among the many things on display this scene, the contrast between the patience of a man versus a woman. As stereotypy and patriarchal with respect to gender roles as that might land today. When considered in a vacuum, it speaks to the nurturing instincts of a caregiver. People who traditionally were women taking care of children. And what are men but overgrown children in need of care? Camilla, can you please shut the then the notion that Adriana is better at technology than Christopher on the basis that she's worked in hospitality with its point-of-sale software apparatus. But so did Richie and the bear. And whatever happened there? I'm just saying I think that's why restaurants and hospitals use the same word. Hospitality. Yeah, oh shit. Hospitality. Even though he attended DeVry and all, that wouldn't necessarily put him up against Elliot Alderson in a hackathon. Finally, how the smell of Blockbuster infused in him the sense to write screenplays. That smell in Blockbuster, that candy and carpet smell, I get high off. Jokes aside, I probably got the bug from the same place, same smell. Most of us delusional enough to try writing films breathed in more Blockbuster carpet while staring down titles than would be medically acceptable by today's standards. Oh my God, somebody get, get a doctor. 
Well, since it's too late to turn back now, sniff, sniff. Hello, welcome to Blockbuster. Next up, a nice threading together of multiple characters. First Chris and Adriana, then Dr. Melfi, and finally over to Tony and Carmela. All in different places, yet all doing the same thing, watching the news on TV. The ostensible martyrdom of one Brendan Filoni, likely what triggered the impending indictments. Christopher's discussed, A, that Filoni was mentioned by name and put on TV, and B, that he was given the honorific of associate. No one would ever have ranked him as associate. Then, loyal soldier. Soldier? As if the dude on the tube knew Christopher was listening. And then the need to find out if anyone else heard the whole broadcast from the beginning to see if his name too George, was did you mentioned. See it from the beginning? Most guys in this thing want to keep as low a profile as possible. But every good story needs opposites, right? So long as Christopher's considered amateur status, he wants an NIL deal with his name, face, and likeness plastered on every billboard in the tri-state area. It's just all about marketing now. We hear the indictments are sealed, so nobody knows what's in them yet. What does that mean, and why is it so? It means nobody knows anything until a court deems it so. And there's a couple or three reasons why. First, it allows law enforcement to keep snooping around without tipping off any targets or potential targets. If you don't know what's next, you're less inclined to skip town or tamper with evidence. And B, see what I did there? There's a safety element to it. Certain people know names, those names might get erased. And not the number two pencil kind of erased. It's done. Next, a Melfi family dinner featuring Nana's Ginzo gravy, spaghetti sauce for the uninitiated. But we are initiated, aren't we, Bruce? This more or less establishing, setting up the B story for this episode. Melfi's broken family, and how they, too, cope by going to therapy. <laughs> we'll get to psychologist Sam later. Melfi corrects her son on the use of that term, driving the point home by letting him know a certain patient of hers might react hostily upon hearing that word. Get caught up. Richard, her husband, or ex-husband at this point, the kind that still enjoy family dinners together, or negotiated for the privilege, anyway, sling stereotypes like Arturo Brizio Carter slung red cards. Mother issues. Family dances around the idea that Melfi's patient is tied up with what's being reported in the news. Notice how when Nana outright asks the question, is he in the mafia, the camera cuts to a close-up of Gramps, who says nothing at first, just listens. The suggestiveness of the cuts and the reactions the camera captures. Does this guy know something? Was he too once OC? Did he, unlike Pontecorvo, manage to make a clean break? Or did he merely have a run-in with them once? And knows when there's smoke, there's usually fire. His plea to his daughter to refer him to another doctor, hints at this anyway. Melfi dodges the question while holding one of Ralph's signature cheese graters, per Valentina's intel, remember? The show does a close-up of a cheese grater in the Whitecaps episode, too. A perfect prop to augur how this conversation might go, as it did for how that whole episode went. 
the conversation, of course, about organized crime giving Italian-Americans a bad name. Richard Romanus, by the way, who played Melfi's ex-husband, recently passed away. Here, he suggests Italian-Americans are synonymous with The Godfather and Goodfellas. Good movies to eat pizza by. As he says that, he's opposite Lorraine Bracco, who, of course, was in Goodfellas. He himself was in Mean Streets. What a meta world to be able to be referential in a referential medium opposite actual people you're making those references about. All this from a slice of gabagool. Melfi's son, Jason, praises those movies and their pantheon-like status on popular culture. To those of us who are parents and we hear kids saying things like that, might as well needle drop teacher children by Crosby, Stills, and Nash during moments like these. Would love to hear one of my own kids singing the praises of the stuff at home at some distant point in the future. Heck, even making it a criteria for a future life partner. Mandatory viewing, like Rocky was for me. Again, little things. Richard's former father-in-law agrees with his grandson, to Nana's satisfaction, by the way. Almost kind of as if she's glad her daughter dropped his ass. However, stigmatizing divorces. His point, if the Irish don't complain about niche portrayals, then why can't we do the same thing? You're Ireland. You mean Ireland? Yeah, it's mine. You're a madman. Now, I'm no sociologist, but I'd imagine one of the reasons portrayals of Irish were less offensive or stereotyped was that they had a longer history of settlement and a more established presence by the time Hollywood got around to telling stories about them, whereas the Italian immigration wave peaked later. Melfi says to blame Hollywood, not her patient. He certainly didn't ask for movies to be made about his world. Exhibit A, Tony's response to Christopher trying to sling screenplays portraying aspects of his life story. What are you gonna do, go ahead and refill on me now? Before we leave this scene, who do you imagine they think her patient is? Junior, right? A psychiatrist? How on the public radar would Tony be at this point? Certainly not household name status to 5 p.m. news casuals. Back over to Christopher wrestling with words on the page. From the looks of it, still at the same spot he was when Adriana last had a look. One tip that might help him, something I heard Joan Didion used to do, is to leave an incomplete thought on the page so that when you come back to it the next time, you hit the ground running. You dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> then, a timely interruption from Tony who needs Chris stat, but only after a stopover for group snacks. Like it's his turn for his kid's AYSO team. Writers just sitting down, trying to write. So what happens when you don't turn off notifications? And speaking of notifications, the notification bell at Poppin' Fresh's Schwiedel outfit when Chris rolls in. Recall, Poppin' Fresh is another name for the Pillsbury Doughboy. Among the many things in this scene, Imperioli gets revenge for his character Spider in Goodfellas, who, of course, also got shot in the foot. The best part of the revenge is the line he drops as he walks out the door 
with his snacks. It happens. Little detail, but worth pointing out because it harmonizes the scene that much more when you consider it. Notice in an episode about what it means to have an arc, Christopher's arc in this sequence alone. He starts off extremely polite and civil, holding a door open as a patron exits, patiently waiting for his number to get called. By the way, sounds eerily familiar for any writers out there too, waiting for the phone call that mostly never comes. Think miles in sideways. You can even see how that might have informed Imperioli's distant, pained expressions. He gave a perfect end-to-end -end performance this episode. Going from all that to vengeful and violent as he exits. Another little detail, the establishing nature of the opening shot in this sequence. We get a wide view of the whole space. All the nooks and crannies where things might happen, people might come out of. Dynamics that may or may not, that's the point, create complications, conflicts, propelling the story forward. Establishing shots like this give us information, clues, things to look out for. Absolutely nothing may come of it. They could be complete bridges to nowhere, though definitionally a bridge to nowhere would never actually be complete. But you get my point. Larks. But, and this is the best part, something unexpected or dramatic could happen. The art and science of this is at the very heart of the final scene of the series and all its establishing angles, giving us perches across the entire field of play. Something could happen, something will happen, something has to happen, are the three competing thoughts we have in our heads the whole time. All because of what's established at the outset. The possibility of unrelenting dramatic tension conveyed in a single frame. When the eventual Vito character rolls in, all casual, Chris loses it. Oh! The Goodfellas homage here is multifaceted. Not only in exacting Spider's revenge, but also in the dialogue. Hey, poppin' fresh, I'm in no fucking mood today. I'm next, now get a fucking pastry box. Modifying shine box to pastry box. If the subtleness, ingenuity, and brisk humor of that eludes you. We're done here. Vito's reaction, the eyes, the lean. Speaking of arcs, that alone, to my eye, was enough to lock him up and give him a multi-season run. I'm a young man. And now, without the weight, I'm a healthy man. With longevity. Then his discipline. When Christopher invites him to leave, assuring him his carb load will be waiting for him when he comes back in 10 minutes, kind of surprising, given that Christopher's a nobody this episode with respect to the press, with respect to Jimmy Altieri at the wedding, with respect to his writing prospects. But here we have a guy now who acts as if he knows who Chris is, or more importantly, what circles he roams in. The association factor, friend of ours. Enough to put the veneer of invincibility on you when you're out and about doing regular, ordinary things. Then, the transaction. What an arc for Poppin' Fresh too, right? How it started versus how it's going. Chris gets his pastry box full of delicious morsels, 
Let's pop in fresh no. Life comes at you fast and goes about his day. But not before the congruous act of flipping the open sign back over, with the bell serving as a perfect end cap to an out of the ordinary, to say the least, encounter. Dropping us, if you will, back into our sunken places, otherwise known as the regularness of life, as this episode teaches us. And all's well that ends well. For a minute, anyway. Christopher arrives at the Bing with the snacks. Hey, this fool you done. What's wrong with you? But is sent off with Georgie to sweep the place for bugs. Now, Georgie's equipped, but he's looking in the wrong places. For those of us who might one day get surveilled, I don't know, for using coal to attempt to make New Haven-style pies in California, where coal is banned, more likely spots than underneath a toilet, who's having a lengthy conversation there, might include electronics like smoke detectors, clocks, air purifiers, behind wall hangings, or even air ducts. They're great for acoustics. What's worse, Georgie furthers the narrative going on inside Christopher's head that he's a nobody. Certainly not worth being named in a sealed indictment envelope. By the way, that that's what Christopher's so wound up about is on a level of humor only few can achieve. Right up there with the best episodes of Curb. Think about it for a sec. And once you do, you won't be able to unsee it or unthink it. Again, just imagine Larry David moping around because he wasn't notorious enough. Speaking of notorious, over at Greengrove, Carmella drops in to take Livia out for a while, pull her out of the obituary section, but not before getting peppered with questions about one of the other residents, calling her a shanty Irish. It's a derogation. A derogation that distinguishes one type of Irish American with their so-called lace curtain brethren, something, recall, that was explored a little in The Departed with respect to Billy Costigan's family. Then questions about Meadows' eating issues, the indictments raining down on Tony, and whether he cheated on Carmela again. You know, I try to do something nice. Basically anything she can say to get out of lunch with Carmela. I don't want to go out. The lengths people go to get out of doing something. It's even more acute today than it was in the time of The Sopranos. Entire meme accounts devote themselves to the idea. At Freud Intensifies is one of my favorites. But after withstanding Livia's best memeable blows, Carmela's still standing. Having convinced her there is no agenda other than quality time, Livia has no choice but to oblige. But she won't wear a seatbelt, no matter what. Every person of a certain age can relate to that with their own maws. Seatbelt. Don't wave your hanky at me. Of course, there's a massive agenda. Tony needs a place to hide his cash and guns. A setup, by the way, for something terrible to happen. Everything about it feels like a bad decision. By the way, the detail of Tony pulling up in the foreground at the beginning of the sequence, framing Carmela in the passenger window, Tony looking over at his three o'clock, chef's kiss. That action sequence, 
of Tony building out his stash spot, that decision to put the camera up high, suffocates us in the space and adds to the urgency and edginess of it all. There are many memorable examples of framing tight spaces like this in cinema. There's Clarice in the elevator in The Silence of the Lambs. There's Tom Skerritt in Alien. Joe Pantoliano in Bound. Walter White in Breaking Bad. And more recently, Ashley Park in Beef. Later, Tony tells Melfi that he's lambing it, potentially, in so many words. Now, she knows what's up, but curiously, plays along. There's an arc shaping here, too. She's not confrontational here, whereas later, as we'll see, she rolled up into the office listening to Kendrick's Money Trees. Money Trees is the perfect place for shading. That's just side Next, a terrific all-time moment in the show. The Christopher Pauly heart-to-heart, or as close to one as it's ever going to get for these two. All, by the way, over Booker T and the MG's take on Gershwin's Summertime. Polly comes by to pick up Christopher and take him out. Two girls await in the car. Scene could have been right out of Swingers. Baby, we're going to get laid. But Christopher, very similar to John Favreau, who we'll meet in a few episodes, can't get over the fact that the computer he jacked and the software he got both haven't finished his script for him yet. This fucking computer, I thought it would do a lot of it. Interesting how he actually bought the software, that he didn't try to cop that too. We can safely assume he didn't have the technical know-how to do that, to access the wares or P2P sites like Napster and later Kazaa that hosted and distributed illegal copies of commercial software, along with their key gens in the 90s and better part of the 2000s. He can't escape this notion of arcs he read in his movie writing book and wants to know where his is and why he can't have one, seemingly wanting one someplace in between the fugitives Richard Kimball and Keanu in The Devil's Advocate. Strange bookends for anybody looking to design an arc for themselves. Most would want something somewhere between Jordan and LeBron, Ronaldinho and Messi, or if you're a writer, Stephen King and, say, Michael Connolly. Certainly not a convict on the run crossed with a lawyer working for the devil. The book he's getting his information from, by the way, is How to Write a Movie in 21 Days by Vicki King. Among the things the book claims to teach, how to move from what you want to say to saying it, and what to say to your spouse when you can't come to bed. I'll be up in a bit. Before we move on, let's take a moment to talk about arcs and storytelling generally, a concept that goes back as far as ancient Greece. The earliest form of arcs, at least in recorded history, came from epics of that period that featured characters who underwent significant transformations, faced challenges. There was the Iliad, which featured well-known names such as Achilles, whose arc bent around anger and pride towards reconciliation. Hector, who you could say his arc was built on conflict between professional duty and family. And Agamemnon, 
whose arc dealt with competition with Achilles. In the Odyssey, we were introduced to Odysseus, whose arc was, in effect, an odyssey, returning home to reunite with his family. Penelope, his wife, who fended off suitors while waiting for daddy to come home. And Telemachus, their son, whose arc was shaped by a classic coming-of-age story. All this is to say, in a parallel universe somewhere, Shlomo's looking down on me and thinking, and the Greeks, where are they now? Now, the idea of arcs was later more formally organized by Aristotle, who took the idea of an arc and stretched it across a three-act structure. The setup, where the intro establishes a sort of status quo for the characters and a typical day in their lives before shaking things up with an inciting incident, setting the story in motion. Take it to see, Mr. Murdoch. Let's stretch her legs. Yes, sir. Compelling our hero to embrace a new challenge. There's the confrontation where character transformation begins. Main narratives become more complex and dynamic, setbacks occur, and questions of doubt arise. And finally, there's resolution, where the hero stares down the whole world, which by this point is seemingly against them, and triumphs, all while experiencing the consequences of the choices that got them to this point. Like that song by Mariah, Butterfly. There's a similar structure in classical symphony, known as sonata form. What starts out stable moves toward conflict, then to heightened tension, and finally back to stability. Resolution, a new normal. The music of succession in the final season was a prime example of this. Arcs come in types, like positions on a basketball court. There are positive arcs, where a character either grows or develops. Negative arcs, characters downfall over time. Flat arcs, where characters remain more or less unchanged, but change the world around them. Think James Bond, always suave, confident, and skilled. And parallel arcs, what the Sopranos is a masterclass in, the layering of different characters with different arcs intersecting or running parallel to one another at various points in the story. Tony and Carmela, Tony and Dr. Melfi, Tony and Christopher, Tony and the kids, Tony and other members of his crew at various points across the show. Tony, 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 and Tony. Huh? <laughs> the Chris, Pauly sit-down I need to sit down for a minute after just recognizing how close that sounds to Chris Paul, transitions to Chris continuing his plea the next day, this time with Pussy. You know who had an arc? Noah. Technically, though, Noah didn't really have an arc arc. Not the kind we've been examining here anyway. I guess, at the risk of jamming a square peg into a round hole, his was kind of flat, like James Bond. Noah was righteous and obedient at the beginning. That's why God picked him for the job, use him as his vessel to cleanse the earth from the worst of humanity. There's no internal transformation or personal struggle, other than perhaps occasionally missing a nail and instead hitting a finger with his hammer. That hurt. Speaking of ouch, Chris and Georgie dig up email. A couple thoughts always resurface here. 
Why bury the body in such an exposed place in the first place? Couldn't it, shouldn't it have been somewhere more isolated? Relatively speaking, of course. We're not talking Chateau d'If circa Monte Cristo, but you know. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Christopher made the decision hastily, it being his first kill and all. And there's no manual for this stuff or YouTube video, but common sense. But that's the rub right there, right? Because if common sense prevailed for Chris, any of these guys, they would have looked at other career options before embarking on this one. Kind of similar when you think about it to screenwriting. It's no accident the two are melded together here like twins. <laughs> they notice email has a beard now and fingernails too, like De Niro and Angel Heart. Thinking email is one of one in that regard. But anatomically, no. That's not what happens. What they're seeing is an illusion. The dehydration that occurs after death causes the skin to shrink, exposing the hair and nails underneath it. What are you fucking doctor now? What are we going to do? Christopher might not realize it yet, but his arc is taking shape before his and our very eyes. He's at the helm of Tony's dirty work. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. Next, Melfi and her ex stand on top of land they're about to sell to finance their kids' adulthood. Not cruises for Richard and his Colleen's. Note the arc here. What starts as a calm remembrance of things past quickly devolves into a verbal shoving match of one-upmanship. But Richard gets the last word, poses an undeniable concept that will haunt Melfi till the very last episode. Finally, you're going to get beyond psychotherapy with its cheesy moral relativism. Finally, you're going to get to good and evil. And he's evil. The look on her face afterward says it all. What Richard's referring to is the idea that psychotherapy doesn't inherently adhere to a specific moral or ethical framework. Instead, it's meant to operate within a patient's own unique context, their values, beliefs, and cultural background. The point being, clinicians are trying to make their space as non-judgmental as possible. Good and evil fits into a bucket known as moral absolutism, where certain things are objectively right or wrong, regardless of context. You have a substitute teacher at Carver Middle School. Chris, with all the sit-downs this episode, first Adriana, then Polly, then Pussy, and now Tony, who's waiting for him, long enough for an artful tracking shot to follow an Amtrak, blow by him from behind. We, of course, talked about the symbolism, imagery, and optics of a train barreling through his head the first time we visited this episode. Only, Tony isn't into Christopher's plight. Not at first, anyway. He's like a cat. You have to earn his empathy. It's not automatic. Cats make you work for their affection. They don't sell out the way dogs do. Huh. Real quick, notice how the first two letters on Christopher's license plate are OG. Inside the car, there's an arc too. From excuses, Polly's big mouth, worrying about fallout from his first kill, cowboy-itis, to explaining. I don't know, Tony. It's like just the fucking regularness of life is too fucking hard for me or something. I don't, I don't know. 
The regularness of life devolves to talk of cancer, which Tony, putting two and two together, diagnoses Christopher as depressed, which Christopher shoots down faster than he shoots up. In an episode where Christopher is getting dunked on by life, by the media, by members within his own crew, he unwittingly exacts revenge, claps back with a death blow to Tony's ego. Tony himself, of course, being prone to depression. Great little reversal. Better still, because Chris has no idea Tony's in therapy. Not yet, anyway. Even better still, Tony forgot how to operate a cigarette. Christopher wonders how Tony knows as much as he does about this stuff. Saw it last night on a program. The extra detail of it being the night before sells it. Moves Chris off it. They share a laugh at the prospect of suicide for either of them. Then that 11-ish second beat of silence where they contemplate it. It's so long it even makes us think. Thoughts. And speaking of the regularness of life, well, for most of us, I guess, the irregularness of life, the FBI pays a visit to Tony's house. Forget about women and children. This is a full-scale invasion. Those sealed indictments got, well, unsealed. Search warrants issued. Thankfully, the higher-up sent Agent Harris to do their bidding, a guy who possesses qualities that make him instantly relatable and sympathetic to audiences. His eyes alone are three to five pages of backstory. Even Carmela approves. One guy wasn't so bad, Harris. The idea or notion of introducing a likable adversary is a fascinating multi-carat thing. Not only for the immediate depth and complexity it introduces, but also, what is this show if not the ultimate breaker of traditional notions of heroes and villains? Never cliche, never formulaic. If the lines between good and evil weren't already blurred enough in this thing of ours, enter Agent Harris, a character whose arc includes aiding and abetting Tony at the end, that 11-ish second moment between them possibly cementing their relationship in ways no words could. In fact, the Agent Harris arc is, in part, one of redemption from antagonist to ally. Your problem with Brooklyn? It's on again, possibly. Storytelling-wise, few arcs are more satisfying. Incorporating an opponent that's likable enriches the conflict. Traditional goodness and badness is spread out across the characters, like a 49ers empty bunch set spread out across the gridiron. Liking Harris ups audience engagement. It conflicts us, man. We're torn. He's a stress test for our loyalty to Tony. And he makes a convincing case. But... Tony's case is stronger. And like us, Harris more or less becomes a convert. An interesting thing happens to both Tony and Harris over the course of the series. They both grow, in part because of each other. Whatever their inherent conflict, good guy versus bad guy, they challenge each other's beliefs, even force each other to reassess values, priorities. On the note of reassessing things, Melfi notices T missed their appointment. That money talk between her and Richard comes to life a little here. Based off their earlier conversation, we assume she's in a better financial position than he is. But Melfi intends to collect 
on a missed appointment, as we'll see in a bit. And her persistence with Tony on it later in no small way suggests it was important to her too, that perhaps she wasn't as flush as her ex made her out to be. Later that night, after a Melfi family dinner, it's only fitting we have a soprano one. The contrast, the symmetry of it all. Tony takes the occasion to remind his family, particularly his children, how vital Italians have been to society throughout history. In the arts with Michelangelo, technology with Antonio Meucci, exploration with John Cabot, the guy who put Canada on the map, spirituality with Mother Cabrini, the first Italian saint, in finance, the founder of B of A, Amadeo Giannini, and in music. And of course, Francis Albert. Now, what do Christopher Columbus and Antonio Meucci have in common? They both got robbed. Meucci, of course, for not getting the appropriate credit for his contributions to the modern telephone and Columbus because he didn't make the cut on this soprano family who's who of Italian greatness. The line about Chinese eating with sticks, the belief, staunch belief, that it was impossible to eat noodles without a fork, humor and fallacy. And you didn't comment on the chopsticks. I love the chopsticks. I, I personally prefer a fork, but they look very nice. <laughs> then Melfi reminds Tony about the payment policy they agreed to at the outset of their relationship. Recall, it doesn't sit well, so much so that he stands. Motherfucking cock sucking money, it. The afterlook of Melfi. Three things going on at once. Questioning her decision to take Tony on, what the fuck was I thinking? Recognizing Richard may have been right. And I'd never tell. And realizing that severing ties with Tony might not come easy. <sighs> Nothing's easy. Next, Junior and Livia have one of their now fabled sit-downs. You know, just your run-of-the-mill, something has to be done about my son, please kill him variety. Bad comic in the background that ultimately only adds to and enhances the comedy of the scene between Livia and Junior. Yes, Junior, for Christ's sake. As line in the sand as Chase can possibly get with traditional notions of comedy pressing right up against his acerbic version of it. I'm running a fucking business, not a popularity contest. Junior sweating a bad apple, wants to sit tight until he figures it out. But Livia pushes Tony right up to the front of the line when she tells Junior he's seeing a psychiatrist. God only knows what he says. Junior's disbelief, as persistent as Livia's, when AJ told her. A psychiatrist? A psychiatrist? Then, Chris gets some news. A VM from his mom. His name was mentioned in the paper. That shot of Chris, though, suffering in bed until he gets a call that springs him up and out toward action, toward conquering the day, even if just for that day alone. Very relatable. And pervasive in cinema. Remember Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids? Tony and Isabella? Cuba Gooding Jr. in 
Boys in the Hood, Tony in Isabella, Barbie in Barbie, Tony in Isabella, Meadow in Boca, and you guessed it, Tony in Isabella. One of the things this show does, and does better than any other, is give us perspectives on therapy through different lenses, not just Tony's. Of course, there's him, and he's the focus, why we show up. But Melfi also sees Elliot. Later, Carmela sees someone. Several people. Meadow sees someone. AJ, too. Even Janice. And here, we get an inside glimpse at a Melfi nuclear family session with the most interesting of therapists who, in another life, could have fronted for the band Stained. It's been a while since we met for therapy. <laughs> His fucking Eames chair with its molded wood and leather. Think he's got the matching ottoman lying around somewhere? Or did he not spring for the real deal and simply settle for one of the hundreds of imposter chairs out there? I think it's the most counterfeited piece of furniture ever. But I don't like talking in absolutes, except with respect to how great the show is. The gold pen he's twirling while deconstructing the people across the table from him. The well-endowed stomach. The guy never misses a meal. Winning the race with Melfi for most over-sculptured office. We learn they're here to address Melfi's having taken on Tony, or Patient X. What a perfect fucking scene. The air in the room, the incessant phone ringing off in the distance, breaking up the ultra-awkward and otherwise irrelevant conversation, how the camera swings around from left to right as if it were wondering, like we were, what the fuck is happening right now? How therapist Sam took their issues and made them all about himself. How he conversationalized in a therapeutic setting. How he serves it up on a platter when he overshares his mother's family history. Those were some tough Jews. And from that slam dunk of a line to Richard's horrified face, we cut to the shot of a church. It simply doesn't get any better. Chase was a minute and a half deep into a hypnotic jam when he abruptly stops on the downbeat to an uproarious cheer from anybody with an HBO subscription or those who figured out a way to cop one. Finally, Christopher's arc is complete. He got his name in the paper and does what any of us would when we were 12, grabs up as many copies as he could. And that's it. That's his arc. He got his cake and ate it too. Shout out to you if you saw what I did there. That's all I got. Thanks for spending your valuable time with me. See you next time. Just around.